How much does it matter if Christians live together before marriage? This is part two. The title for this morning's teaching is The Marriage Covenant, God's Defense Against Sexism. The Marriage Covenant, God's Defense Against Sexism. There are certain uh, thought patterns that have to be assembled in proper order to make the Christian life a fruit-producing, joyful experience rather than just a reluctant grind of rule-keeping. A sequence of understanding. Let me explain that. Take the very basic demand for the disciples' obedience throughout the New Testament. That's, That's what we do. We obey Jesus. The importance of obedience, it would be impossible to overstate it. In spite of the modern attempt to separate the grace of forgiveness received at the beginning of the Christian life from the ongoing obedience in the rest of the Christian life, there's there's simply no base for that in the New Testament. There is no such thing. Please understand. There is such a thing as Christians who fail and repent. There is no such thing as a persistently disobedient Christian. The life of obedience, now I said earlier there's a sequence of understanding. The life of obedience is going to be is going to be hard won and frequently grudgingly performed until there's another discovery made in the mind first, hence sequence. Before you just start obeying, before I lean into my obedience, I should ask another question first, a really important question, and it's this. Why? Why does God demand obedience from Don Horbin? What is in Father God's heart when he tells me what to do. And if I've never seriously considered that issue, if I've never asked that question and allowed the answer to echo and resonate and penetrate persistently in my mind, if I've never done that, I will sooner or later, in certain areas at least, resent obedience even if I offer it. My heart will have a a resentful, obligatory, bowing posture rather than a praise-filled, loving obedience. Or worse, as is the case with much of progressive Christianity, I'll just explain away the need for obedience at all. He just loves me and I can skip along and do whatever I want. Here's how the commanding will of God disappears even among professing Christians. God gets replaced. Feelings become, you've heard me say it, feelings become the ultimate authority, happiness becomes the ultimate goal, and absolute value judgments become the absolute ultimate sin. So here is what I must constantly retell myself about God's commanding approach to Don Horban's life. It's this. 
This is the sequence. This is the first thing you have to understand before you just start obeying. Everything Father God commands is for my good. Everything Father God commands, even if it's very uncomfortable, even if it's very costly, everything Father God commands is for my good. This is true, even though many of the things he commands go against what I think is best for me. So in other words, I am saying we all, to varying degrees, problem that won't be totally erased until Jesus comes again. Here's the problem you have and I have. Put the mirror on your own soul here. We do not hear many of God's commands the way he speaks them. This spiritual hearing problem, it's part of the residue, a hangover from the fall. The commands of divine love frequently feel restrictive, often appear unreasonable, the way a curfew feels restrictive to a dating 16-year-old. For this reason, I should never just waddle into raw-willed, mindless obedience. Until Jesus comes again, I must constantly remind myself why Father God commands. Expressing his absolute will is what our holy God does. He will never stop doing that. And that divine will can quickly be questioned with evasions to obedience. As I constantly hear Father God's motive, not just his command. Hear his motive not just his command. Now, that's a long introduction to this. The sexual blindness of our culture regarding the growing, rapidly growing preference to cohabitation over marriage is manifested in many ways and many culturally snappy Christians, they buy into it. And what they're doing is, without realizing it, they're not just disobeying. They are walking away from the protective, commanding will of God. The primary uh, basis of misunderstanding is this. Now thinking about cohabitation now. The primary error is this. Sexual intercourse is not the covenant sign of love in the scriptures. Does everybody understand that? Sexual intercourse is the covenant sign of marriage in the scriptures. It's a basic misunderstanding. Every sappy program you watch on TV where some little darling girl is going out and she's messing up her life and mom and dad sit down with her and say, no, no, you wait until you really love someone. All the time, that's the message. And Christians have come to buy it. In God's design, sexual intercourse doesn't prove love. 
it can prove lust. But it doesn't prove love. In God's design, it proves the covenant in marriage. And that boundary-defining command, now back to the intro, that boundary-defining command, like every other divine command, is given with the motive of love and protection from God, not just a flexing of divine muscle. My main point of concern in the rest of this teaching, and it doesn't happen very often, if you're visiting with us, you, you might come here another 10 years, well, I'd probably be dead and gone, but you might come here for a very long time and you won't hear this again. So you just either lucked out or... <laughs> so my main point of concern right now, I want to prove that point, that God's, God's boundary-defining command about marriage is for protection. It's for good. It comes from love. That's what I'm trying to show. So my main point of concern now is to show the mountain of evidence that Father God's divine marriage command, like all of God's commands, is rooted in love rather than just mere restriction. And one of the marriage covenant's most loving rewards is it is the greatest defense against sexism. Let me explain. People don't cohabit with the intent of becoming sexist. And certainly most would deny they were. But there's something that happens with sin, with all sin. And it's this. Sin always comes in bunches. You, you end up darkened in more than one area of your mind. Sin always spreads beyond the initial point of rebellion. It's like deadly chemicals leaching into a stream. Here's how it works, and here's the text I want to just talk about for a minute. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Testify in the Lord. He's saying the Lord Jesus says this. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and interestingly, he doesn't start when he says, don't walk like the Gentiles, the pagans. He doesn't start with any particular activity. Don't copy them in this bad deed. Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It's up here first. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. He's not talking IQ here that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become, become, happened over time. They weren't aiming at this. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the key phrases are darkened in their understanding, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but surely that can't be right. I mean, surely not each of these darkened individuals has committed every sin imaginable. He can't mean that. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity? Really? What can that mean? Here's what it means. And I want to relate it to our topic in just a second. 
It means that with a darkened understanding, there is nothing to prevent or to protect the life from sins they still might regard as morally offensive, but will soon be trapped up in anyway. Like I said earlier, sin always comes in bunches. The sins you justify bring along with them sins you hate but won't be able to escape. You see how that works? A darkened understanding. The sins you justify, that's not a big deal, the sins you justify bring along with them eventually sins you will hate but from which you will not be able to escape in terms of bondage and the damage they will do to your life. I think that's a profound spiritual principle. Now, coming back to the subject, I said cohabitation feeds sexism. And then I said couples who cohabit probably don't mentally embrace sexism. They aren't pursuing it. They're probably offended by it. But cohabitation naturally tends towards sexism nonetheless. Here's, here's an example. Take, take this one. You can see a clear example of this with the sin of abortion. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's getting to be an awkward fight for consistent feminists because the bare facts... The bare facts are solidly undeniable. The vast majority of babies killed in the womb in our hemisphere are black. The vast majority. And the vast majority of babies killed globally, and I mean vast majority, are girls. So the consistent feminist has a problem. The consistent feminist must choose her argument very carefully because to be in favor of a woman's right to choose is also to be in favor of racism and sexism. And that's because there is no stopping off place in what our text calls a darkened understanding. When you snub God's creative authority in one area, you reap the results of that disobedience in many other areas. You end up with living living with a moral darkness you might not even agree with, but you're in. Point number one. I tried to say it quietly, and then you wouldn't go, what? Statistically, men and women are not equal in the expectations they bring to a cohabiting relationship. (laughs) Imagine the following scenario, please. Take thousands of cohabiting couples and bring them into an interview setting, okay? You divide the couples up, putting all the women in one area and all the men in another. Tell each one you want to talk to them about the future of their relationship, all right? Ask each man and each woman to write down where they see their cohabiting relationship going in the next three years, Then, bring them back into the same room, match the partners up, and compare their answers. How similar do you think the answers given in private would be regarding their relational futures? Well, here's the thing. 
We don't have to guess. We don't have to guess. Because in nothing to do with Christian settings whatsoever, this has been done hundreds of times with many cohabiting couples. So here's your test. I have a quiz for you. Which of these three conclusions do you think researchers found to be true? A, cohabiting men and women at largely the same percentages both hope to move their relationship into marriage as soon as possible. That's A. Trying to remember these. B, cohabiting men and women felt they were just having fun with their relationship and felt no need to rush into marriage. So A, both partners want to move from cohabiting to marriage as soon as possible. B, neither couple is interested in marriage. They're just enjoying living together. Or C, cohabiting men and women had very different views on where they thought their relationship was going. What option would you pick? You win. Everybody gets $5,000. See Mark Critch, treasurer? Over and over again, and here's the important point. I want you to hear this. Across all racial, ethnic, economic, and educational backgrounds, excluding all those factors, the third answer is overwhelmingly the choice. And if you are a woman, you need to know which of these was the choice because in the vast majority of cases, close to 80%, it was the woman who saw the relationship as moving into marriage just as soon as possible. 80-some percent women, 20% men. Now, here are the conclusion of researchers as they study this data. These aren't Christians in any way, shape, or form. These could be atheists, for all I know. Galena K. Rhodes and Scott M. Stanley and Howard J. Markham in, here's the title of the study, A Longitudinal Investigation of Commitment Dynamics in Cohabiting Relationships. And they say the following, quote, In these relationships, women may be at a disadvantage in terms of relational power because they are the ones that are more committed. Particularly if they are unaware of the difference in commitment, women may wind up making more sacrifices for their relationships than their partners, and these unrequited sacrifices could be detrimental if the relationship ends. It's not a Christian study. Cohabitation is a sexist setup right from square one. Point number two. Statistically, men and women are not equal in safety in a cohabiting relationship. The Family Violence Research Program at the University of New Hampshire, that's the leading American institution studying domestic violence. It finds that all other factors being equal, cohabitors are much more violent than marrieds. That's a quote. Specifically, the overall rate of violence for cohabiting couples is twice as high as for married couples, and the rate of severe violence is five times higher. 
Now, please pay attention to this. Consider their other staggering findings. Instances of violence and abuse rated highest in cohabiting relationships at 48%, while the national average for acts of violence in marriage was 19%. And the important point to note is that these rates hold true, even taking into account education, age, occupation, income. In other words, cohabitation by itself accounts for domestic violence, not some other factor like poverty, education, status, etc. Something else. These numbers don't show that men are more violent than women in cohabiting relationships. The ratio of violence splits equally among both men and women. However, women suffer more in these violent encounters due to lack of size and physical strength. So they're not more innocent, but they come out on the short end of the stick. Point number three. Statistically, men and women are not equal in the faithfulness to the commitment of the cohabiting relationship. I mentioned this before in the highly touted national sex survey reveals that live-in boyfriends are four times more likely to have cheated on their partner in the past 12 months than a married man. Four times. Even more important for this teaching, this non-Christian survey concludes that cohabitation before marriage is still associated with reduced sexual exclusivity after marriage. In other words, even after the marriage takes place, there's a greater chance for unfaithfulness because of the training in the cohabiting relationship. Like, that's a significant statistic. Study published in the Journal of Marriage and Family reveals, not surprisingly, that cohabitors, quote, more closely resemble singles than married people in extra-relational sexual liaison. Liaisons. Liaisons, yeah. And they concluded the relational clarity and commitment of marriage served to protect against infidelity. So I want to wrap up. See, that wasn't overly long, but I'm not quite done. It is no longer the case, sadly, that all Christians bring the same moral understanding on this subject. We have a growing number of Christians who no longer know how to think like Christians. They know how to behave like Christians in a lot of cases. They don't know how to think like Christians. There are Christians listening to me right now probably younger in age, though not necessarily, I say probably. And I want, as your pastor, to spare you a life of confusion and misery. Hear me, please. All these statistics, maybe too many in one message, all these statistics should only serve to prove what you should have known all along. God always knows what he's talking about. He's the creator. He made you. And every person you will ever date or marry, he made you. 
He created you. He is and has always been way ahead of the sociology departments and the psychology departments and the philosophy departments. He reveals his will out of deep wisdom as the creator of all and commands out of deep love. And no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I'd like everyone in the room to get your Bible out. You got a Bible, you got an iPad, you got a everybody. And I want you to look up Psalm 19. We'll wait for you. Take your time. I just want everyone to see it. And I'm going to read, and then there's a part that I want you just to listen to. The last part of verse 8. Do you see it? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. And here's the verse. Thinking about the subject specifically. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Look at me. In keeping them, all those commandments, in keeping them, not just, well, you'll stay out of hell. In keeping them, there's great reward. Remember I opened up saying it's the motive, the motive behind the command, that if you don't see it, your, your chances of success go down drastically. The psalmist says, here's what I've learned. Of all the things God's commanded me, do what he says, not out of fear, do what he says, because when you do, there's great reward. 